0: Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, if you would, with me. Give the more earnest heed. Last time we were together, we focused in uh, the interpretive expectation that undergirded the great call to action we find in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So we spent our time, if you recall, focusing on the connection between the angels, which we'll talk about in. Uh, specifically verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 2, and the connection between the angels over which the Son is superior and the law. And the reason why this connection mattered is because the essence of Paul's argument here in Hebrews 2 is not that the Son is superior to the prophets and the angels. It's actually that God in times past spoke through the law and the prophets, But in these last days, God has spoken to his son. And it's important for us to understand that this does not mean that the law and the prophets has no value. By no means is that true. But rather, that on a scale of importance, the message that the son brought as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is superior, not contradictory, not destructive, but superior in every way to that which has gone before so that you have the law and you have the prophets and these are wonderful things and these are excellent things and God used these and they were steadfast and they were potent and they were powerful. And if that is true and Jesus Christ as the Son of God is greater than the prophets and greater than the angels who are the ones who were the disposers of the law, right? However that works, then how much greater, how much more should we listen to the Son? And that's the argument. That's what we're getting into this week, laying the foundation for this major call to action. It's the first of several calls to action where we'll see Paul make an argument, and then at the end of that argument, he'll kind of make a call to action. And this is different from his other books. Now, we, we argued as to, in the book sermon, why I believe that Paul is the one that wrote this book. But one of the reasons why people struggle with that idea is because there is a different flavor to this. It's almost like Paul makes an argument, that he concludes that argument with a call to action, then another argument, then another call to action, rather than his typical, where he spends the first half of the book on almost a theological treatise of a point, and then the second half of the book giving the practical implications and applications of that point. And again, this shouldn't necessarily throw us off, as um, I preach in different ways too, I typically have this understand and apply format, right, where I teach, and then at the end of the teaching, I give way to an application section. But then there's other times where I apply throughout. And I have a, a kind of your typical three-point outline idea. Here's a the point, these are the verses. Here's another point, these are the verses. And so I have different styles, and, and so that shouldn't necessarily throw us off. But we do see Paul giving an argument, and that argument effectively climaxing, in a sense, in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. And so this is what we read in those verses. The Bible says, "'Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed "'to the things which we have heard, "'lest at any time we should let them slip. "'For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, "'and every transgression and disobedience "'received a just recompense of reward, "'how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, "'which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, "'and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him?' God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So let's walk through this text together, beginning in verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Because God, who spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken by his Son, right, that's how... Chapter 1, verse 1 started. Because God has ordained from the beginning that the Son would be superior both in authority and in inheritance unto the angels. And that's what we learned as we continued through chapter 1, right? That He is superior by, by reason of inheritance. He's superior by reason of authority to the angels. We have all the more reason not only to allow, not, not only to avoid the, the danger of the, su- the message of the Son falling on deaf ears, but beyond that, to take true heed to what the Son is saying. Now, remember Paul's audience here. Jewish believers in first century Israel. Israel at one of their most zealous times in the history of Israel as pertaining to the Law and the Prophets. Their zeal to keep the law was immense in this time. Their national fervor had perhaps never been stronger, maybe only rivaled by the the days of of the initial exodus and perhaps the days of David. Their sacrificial system was never so well thought out and established as it was in that time. Recall when we were studying in Sunday school through a little bit of of Kings and Chronicles, we, we noted that there were times where it became quite evident that the, the sacrificial system wasn't very high up on their priority list at the time, right? That there were times where the law went completely, got completely lost to where entire generations of Israel had never even seen a copy of the law, right? And yet here we are in this time of the first century Jews, and they are zealous. They know the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Pharisees in particular, they had memorized the law They knew this stuff. The law and the prophets was elevated more, perhaps, than any other time in the history of of the Jewish faith. But Paul says to this group of Jewish believers, knowing the superiority of the Son to the prophets and the law, knowing that God has chosen in this last time to speak not through the law and the prophets, but directly through the Son, How much more heed than all of the heed that you have been putting for generations now into the law? How careful have you been, Jewish believer, in the first century, observing the Sabbath? How careful had you been with the laws of redemption? How careful had you been with the trespass offerings and the wave offerings and all of these offerings? How careful had you been? Okay, now that was the law and the prophets. And now God has spoken through His Son, how much more careful should you be to take heed to the message of the Son? And this harkens back to the parable that we considered several weeks ago in Matthew 21, if you recall, that a certain householder let his vineyard out to husbandmen and he goes into a far country. And at the time of the harvest, he he sends his servants and the husbandmen refuse the householder beating and killing his servants. Remember that parable. And at last, at last of all, Jesus says in the parable, the householder sent unto him his son saying, Matthew 21, 37, they will reverence my son. Right? I sent the law. I sent the prophets. They beat them. They maimed them. They excoriated them. And at the last, actually, they ended up elevating them to God itself, right? Right? but they will reverence my son, was, is the reasoning. So at that time, we were con- at, at the time when we were considering that fact, that God had told us everything that, that he was going to tell us, that there's nothing more to say, uh, that God has said everything he's going to say, that God has revealed himself fully through his son, and now we see this exhortation to these Jews who elevated the law, and it was effectively this. Jewish believers, you elevated the law. You elevated the prophets. Elevate the sun above it. Elevate the sun above it. And this is not just an exhortation. It's significantly more than an exhortation. This is a warning. There's an urgency. There's a carefulness to how Paul frames this conclusion. And we've studied now this superiority, right? We, we, we talked through over several weeks the the nature in chapter 1 of the superiority of the Son to the angels. We went to Old Testament Scripture to prove it, right? That God had, from eternity past, and all throughout the Scriptures, even in the Law and the Prophets, had ordained for the Law and the Prophets to be fulfilled by the Son. And thus the message of the Son to come and to be elevated above that of the Law and the Prophets. This week is all application. It's all implication. And the point is this, Paul writing, saying, you'd better be on God's side on this one. If we think the Old Testament is valuable, and by the way, we do. It's not just they thought the Old Testament is valuable. I hope you think the Old Testament is valuable because it is. This morning, we saw a little glimmer of why the Old Testament is so valuable as we saw this example of Joseph, right? And how Joseph can teach us beautiful, deep, and truly convicting lessons about the nature of humility and forgiveness and even relate to us the nature of Christ's forgiveness in his own experiences. So if we think the Old Testament is valuable and powerful and important, and we do, how much more should we regard the value, the power, and the importance of the words of God's only begotten Son? So take heed, Christian, lest you should fall short of giving the words of the true and living God the value and the merit that they're that they due. Take heed, Christian, lest you should regard the revelation of God in the person of His Son as a small thing. Take heed, Christian, that either in word or in deed, you're found to be dismissive of the authority and the worth of the Son of the living God by dismissing the words that He spoke. And as Paul gives this warning in this exhortation, he invokes, as we saw last time, the nature of the Old Testament itself, right? We studied about the nature of the angel, the angels in the Old Testament. Particularly, we went to Exodus 23, where God promised that an angel would go before the nation of Israel, and God said, don't provoke this guy, because he will show you no mercy. So we read in verses 2 and 3 of Hebrews 2, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? So we know based upon our study last week what Paul is saying here. When Paul speaks about the steadfastness of the word spoken by angels, he is speaking about the nature of the law of Moses itself when he states that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, he is invoking the precedent of the Old Testament economy, where God said, obey my law and you will be blessed, disobey my law and you will be cursed. He's invoking the the warning even of, of Exodus 23, as we just mentioned it. An economy where one man, think about this, where one man named Achan, introducing sin into the camp through disobedience to the Lord's command, caused God to revoke His blessing upon the entire nation of Israel and to bring about a failure in the, entire, in, in the work of the entire nation over the sin of one man in the camp. A cold system of justice and of reward, the blind scales of justice weighing actions and consequences, where the anger of the Lord at disobedience might be manifest by the fire of God falling upon heaven and consuming its hosts, or plagues causing tens of thousands to die, or the earth literally opening up and swallowing people. <laughs> right? Such was the steadfastness of the holiness of God exercised through the justice of the law spoken by angels. Recall how terrifying this was to the people of Israel. We went to Exodus 23 last week, but and I, I take you to this somewhat often. It's it's one of these examples that is seared on my heart. In Exodus chapter 20, remember how terrified the giving of the law was, uh, terrifying it was to Israel. Let's read through it, verses 1 through 19 of Exodus 20. upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt, do no, thou shalt not do any work Thou nor thy sons, nor thy daughters, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger, which is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Verse 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of, a trump- of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off and they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. God spoke, and the people saw thunderings, and heard thunderings, saw lightnings, heard the noise of a trumpet, the top of the mountain literally burning with fire, smoke billowing from it. And the Bible says they removed themselves. They, ran, they got out of there. God said, make sure no one approaches the mountain, so no one was approaching the mountain, but uh, in, in, in perhaps typical fashion, you might expect, Moses says, don't cross this line, and they, God's going to speak to them, so they're up at the line, right? They want to be close. They want to be in the action. God starts speaking, and they start backing up. The weight of God's holiness and justice was so heavy. The proclamation of the law spoken by angels was so terrifying. That the people begged Moses never, ever, ever again to let it happen to them. And rather, they say, let's, let's have the angels ordain this at the hand of a mediator. <laughs> God speaks to you, the angels speak to you, you get the law, you tell us. And we'll treat that as if God's speaking. Lest we die, they said. The fear was that they were going to die such was the impact of the word spoken of the law. And so if that word demanded that much respect, if the word spoken was so weighty and so powerful, if the authority and the reality of it was that weighty, how much more should the words of God's Son, though they didn't come in thundering and lightning They didn't come with a mountain billowing with fire and smoke. They came in the form of a meek man, a man who was not desired. There was nothing that he should be desired. Yet the words were just as weighty and on the testimony of the Word of God, more so. How much more should the words of God's Son pierce our hearts and instill in us an urgency to listen and an urgency to obey. Now, if you stopped listening to the sermon right there, you'd think I would, uh, I, I, I would think that you would walk away with a misunderstanding of what I'm saying. So listen on and listen carefully. You and I do not operate under the cold calculating nature of the law, do we? That is not our call. We don't operate in this life with the weight of God's justice hanging over us in this physical way to where my sins will bring unequivocal justice at the hand of God. And that because we aren't under the covenant of the law that God made with Israel, we're not under that law of Moses. We were not sprinkled with the blood of the covenant as Israel was. We were not there to, to, to ratify it. We were not circumcised to usher us into the nation of Israel. Uh, we were not, we, we, we are not Israel. The Bible makes this very clear that the church is not Israel. No other nation, even in that day, operated under the full weight of that covenant. Neither do we. We have a fundamentally different relationship with God. We call this relationship grace. We often call this age the age of grace or a dispensation of grace. A lifting of the weight and the burden of the law because we are placed into Christ, who fulfilled the righteousness of the law in himself. And to that end, we fulfill the righteousness of the law in Christ himself. Jesus said in Matthew 11 to the Jews operating under the cold, heavy burden of the law, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls." for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The promise of the sun is that the yoke is easy. And that doesn't mean it's easy in the sense that the Christian life is easy. What it means is that the, the, the burden is light. The yoke is not a hard yoke, a heavy yoke, a difficult yoke on us, not for us, but on us. And that light burden is simply this. It's a submission of the heart. Then, through the earnest of the Holy Spirit given to a man at the moment of belief, he is transformed. He is given a new heart. He is enabled to live in a manner that pleases God. And as we submit ourselves to God, as we trust and obey, as we yield ourselves to Him, as we studied some time ago in in Tuesday evening, how to walk in the Spirit by obeying God's command, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And as we do this thing, as we align with this thing, God bears his fruit in us and we fulfill that righteousness in our bodies. What's interesting and fascinating to me in the scriptures is that as Paul spoke to this difference of relationship in Galatians, he used an illustration which mirrors the teaching that Paul has established in Hebrews. In Hebrews 1, we saw Paul contrast the prophets and the angels as servants of God with the Son of God, who is more than a servant, he's a son, and the unique and elevated standing authority and inheritance that this relationship and title afforded to him. Well, in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, Paul makes the same argument in distinguishing the follower of God under the law with the follower of God under grace. Consider this argument with me in Galatians chapter 3. And again, we're going to read a chunk of scripture here. Paul says this, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels at the hand of a mediator. Right? There's that argument that we invoked last week about angels. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that an heir, this is chapter 4, verse 1, As long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. But is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, I know that this was a long passage, but did you follow the argument? Paul likens the follower of God in the Old Testament economy to be like a servant and sons under tutor be like servants and sons under tutors and governors under a sub authority an authority that's under the main authority this would be as Paul describes it in both Galatians chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 2 the words spoken by angels and ordained at the hand of the mediator the law was hired by God to be a tutor a governor a a restrainer of transgressions until the time that God had chosen, until the fullness of time would come. And so the law was this schoolmaster to justify to the hearers the need for something greater. It was given at the disposition of angels, and for those many generations, mankind sat under the authority and governance of this harsh, unfeeling tutor this cold, unwavering righteousness of the law. And this law had to be cold and unwavering because all it was doing was, it was just a placeholder, meant to justify the need for something more. And it did a great job at it because it was cold and it was unfeeling and it was heavy and it was hard and it was impossible to keep. Until the time came, appointed of the Father, when God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, to call them out of that, to bring them into something else. And thus, to all who are accepted and all who will accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are then adopted as sons so that the spirit of his son cries into our heart, Abba, Father. And so we're no more more servants but sons, not entitled like Jesus is the only begotten son, but rather in relationship, adopted into the family of God by virtue of our faith. And as we've already contemplated in the only begotten Son, the superiority of the Son to the servant, so too we extend this relationship to our relationship with God, that in Christ and through His Holy Spirit, we have the spirit of adoption, We have a comforter teaching us all things. We have the empowerment of God to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We are translated from death into life, made inheritors of God through Christ. We are redeemed. We are saved. We are made new. And this, if we want a perfect um, reflection of the nature of what Paul is, is exhorting us unto here, this system under which we operate this newness of life, this, the, the, the Spirit of God indwelling, this redemption, which the Bible says the Old Testament prophets uh, uh, marveled at and wondered at and the angels desired to look into, this system is so much superior to what they had in the Old Testament. You and I have, have experienced that firsthand. You've felt it. You know it. You know the power of grace. They, th- that They didn't have that. And that same idea, that same superiority is what Paul is attempting to reflect as it relates to the message of the Son. Jesus said unto, uh, in, in Luke 12, verse 48, unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. So here's the thing. What you and I have in Christ is more, not less. The yoke is easy, the burden is light, it's superior, but it's also more. And to whom much is given, much is required. If the Old Testament saints did not have the indwelling Spirit of God to bear the fruit of the Spirit in them, if the Old Testament saints did not have this reality that they passed from darkness into light, that they were quickened, made alive by the Spirit of God, if they did not have the church of the living God If they did not have these advantages, then they also had a lower threshold of accountability. Right? If they were still under the governor and the tutor, then they were under the accountability of those being taught. When my children are learning a lesson, there is a measure of grace that is afforded to them as it relates to the fullness of of accountability. Let's put it in another way. While my children are growing up, I am hard on them as it relates to stealing so that they can learn the lesson before they face the full accountability of stealing when they're adults. They have the freedom of adulthood, but with it comes the accountabilities of adulthood. Accountabilities which they do not suffer if they were to walk out of the store with a piece of candy in their hand They would not suffer the accountability that they might suffer as they walk out of the store with something that is not theirs 20 years down the road. What we have in Christ is more. More holiness, not less holiness. More justice, not less justice. More grace, not less grace. More love, not less love. Enabled through the superiority of the Son to His servants. And this makes us no more servants but sons by adoption and heirs of God through Christ. And so, Christian, if the word of the law was steadfast, if the expectation upon that covenant nation was that strong, people being swallowed by the earth, fire falling from heaven, how much more rests upon us who have heard the words of the only begotten Son, have had them confirmed by those who have heard him, so that we read in verses 2 through 4, this idea, and then giving way, um, excuse me, we read, for if the word of God spoken by angels was steadfast, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, and then adding to that, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, diverse miracles, gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own. will. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But this so great salvation, revealed in Christ, testified by witnesses, confirmed by signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Ghost, how much more responsible are we to the commands of Christ, not only in that they are greater, but in that we have the Spirit of God to enable us to obey them. How much more accountability rests upon we who hold in our hands the complete revelation of God, who can read at any time, day or night, who have lights that we can flick on in the middle of the night to read it if we want. You can't say, well, it's dark. I can't read it now. Or, well, the fire is, the fire is dying down, so it's going to be hard. Or, 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 well, you know, my eyes are getting bad. And, and no, because now we have, we have correction. Now, there are, there, there, are, there are still, naturally, people that struggle to read and such. But what I'm saying is, how much more accountability upon we who have all of these advantages at our disposal, who have the word of God basically 24-7. And if we neglect so great salvation, what will the result be for us on the day of judgment? First, if we neglect entering into that salvation by grace through faith, when God has sent His Son, delivered Him for our offenses, raised Him for our justification, confirmed Him among many witnesses, there are still people out there today that do not have access to the Word of God, that do not have the message of God, and the accountability will be be on par with that. But for we who live in the United States of America, who sit in church several times a week, whose homes are filled with the Word of God, how much accountability if we reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then second, for we who are in Christ, if we neglect living in the blessed reality and hope of that salvation, if we neglect to live out our salvation, to work it out with fear and trembling, to progress, to trust in the Word of God, to believe it, obeying the commands of our Lord, love one another as I have loved you. And this leads us to a point of decision. You know, grace is a wonderful thing. We sing that song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And it's beyond true, is it not? The wonders of God's salvation, the implications upon my life and my eternity, the blessed and wonderful change it has wrought in my heart, the peace and joy that it leaves in its wake. It is truly, as Christ said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But do not we also sing... Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. And is this not true as well? That to whom much has been given, much is required? God does not demand it of me as a payment. I am not a debtor to grace in the idea that if I do not, that, 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 that what Christ has done for me has incurred for me a debt. That's not true. That's not what that even means. That's not what it means when we sing, O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. It doesn't mean, well, now I owe God, and if I don't pay up, then he's going to revoke that grace. No, grace is grace, right? Unmerited favor. It is given to us. But once I have grace, I am then constrained to a life of recognition of what I have been saved from and a call unto what that should mean for me. God does not demand of me as a payment this concept of grace. Threatening to take away his grace if I fail to measure up, this is impossible. But how accountable will I, will you and I be on the day of judgment if we scorn that grace in our lives? If we continue in sin, that grace may abound. And to this end, Paul exhorts, let us take the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip because as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4, verses 17 and 18, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, those who are believers, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? For those who reject the Son in total, for those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have been confronted in their hearts through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, perhaps through the words of men, with the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the testimonies to prove the preeminence of the Son, the day of judgment for them will be a day of, of tremendous fear. But Peter says here, and this is how he describes it, that the righteous will scarcely be saved because judgment will begin at the house of God. Now, this is not Peter trying to minimize the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is not Peter trying to minimize the fact that Jesus' uh, sacrifice was sufficient to save mankind or, or that, that um, God just barely accepted Jesus' But rather, uh, Jesus's sacrifice, but rather simply this perspective that says this, I was saved by no merit of my own, by no righteousness of my own. I'm not worthy of it. I don't deserve it. The only thing that got me in was Jesus Christ and that to him is scarcely saved. I could run down a list of a thousand things that, that, that in this world, a person believes they'll go to heaven for. And I can run down that list and I can cross out every single one that doesn't measure up. And there's only one thing on that list that will remain. The blood of Jesus Christ, right? That's the only thing on that list that's valid, and that's the idea. I run down that list of thing after thing after thing after thing after thing, and there's only one of them that that actually is valid. There's only one of them that will actually save me from a sinner's hell, and that's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His blood shed for me. Faith in that work. That's what Peter means when he says scarcely saved. And this is all the more reason to take earnest heed to the things that we have heard. Now, the things that we have heard, not Pastor Wickler's words, not teacher so-and-so's words, not mom and dad's words, but the inspired word of God, testified from those that heard, validated with signs and wonders, the word of God. The testimony of the Spirit of God, through His Word, by His Spirit in the hearts of men, and so the question is: How are we doing at taking the more earnest heed? This whole this whole message is kind of an application message. Again, I I, I, I talked through last time the nitty gritty. It was very lectury. It was very academic. This is the application. Really, this is the point of the entire book of Hebrews, so you're going to hear this again, so get, get comfortable. We've said it already. We'll say it again. Paul is laser-focused on this idea of hearing. Faith cometh by hearing. Faith, right? The book is about faith. And this is the time to ask the question. While we're in Hebrews, and we're going to be in here for a little while, right? While we're here in Hebrews, it's amazing how each book kind of has something that it focuses on, right? Philippians, we were really talking about unity and serving one another. First Corinthians, we were really talking about this idea of carnal- carnality and spirituality, and thus bringing about spiritual gifts and understanding them. Job, we were really focused on suffering. In Hebrews, the question is going to be, "Are you listening?" That's the question. This is our time to nail this part of our Christian life down. Are you listening? This is the time to search your hearts throughout the course of this Hebrew series. Are you listening? This is our time to fearfully and lovingly determine that the superiority of the Son demands my attention, demands my priority, so that I'm going to give every attention to His works and His word and His way. And do you know what the best part of it is? What my favorite part of this whole thing is, and it come, it's reflected in, in, in that, that verse to trust and obey that I love so much, right? But you never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar you bear, or uh, you lay, excuse me. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Faith always precedes blessing. We know that from Hebrews 11 when we studied it on Tuesday night. The best part about this whole thing is that no man who has ever given the more earnest heed, no man who has ever prioritized so great salvation, no man who has ever swam deeper into the promises of faith has ever for a moment regretted it. And so this is why when Jesus looked out at that group and he said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, he could say that. Because when we stand from the outside looking in at whatever it is that you're looking at and you're saying, I get it, Pastor. And, you know, this, this passage is a little heavy-handed and I get that and, 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 and you're feeling a bit of that pressure and you've tried and you've failed and you've struggled and you've desired and all of these things and it's all there and, and you're feeling this, this, this weight of giving the more earnest heat and it feels like a weight. It feels like a weight. But that's kind of... it's like a phantom pain. It's kind of a deceptive feeling. The reason why it's such a deceptive feeling is because when you give in, when you you look at that yoke and you say, I'm going to put that yoke on, I'm going to accept that yoke by faith, you find out, wait a minute, what I thought was going to be a heavy burden to bear is actually the taste of freedom, liberty, joy, release, Delight, life, and not just life, but life more abundantly. And each time we fight, fight that battle and we face that battle, and we come to another point where we say, Oh, that's a weight, that's a burden. The word of God, and it's sitting heavy on your heart because it's heavy and it's a heavy burden. And then you take that step of faith and you put on that yoke. You say, I'm going to carry that burden you actually find that that yoke is very easy and that burden is light, that you have just added not to your burden, but to your freedom, to your liberty, and to abundance of life. So let us give the more earnest heed, Christian. If the word spoken by angels, if the law and the prophets was that steadfast, and we see people even today as they approach the the law of Moses with such fervency, Our fervency unto grace should outpace them by a mile. Let us give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Let us not fall short of the blessings of the crucified life, forged by our great Lord and Master even unto death. Let us instead take up that cross and follow him. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.